Welcome to Force Points to the Point Cybersecurity Podcast. Each week, join Eric Trexler and Erica Pierce to explore the latest in government cybersecurity news and trending topics. Always covered in 15 minutes or less. Now, let's get to the point. Hi, and welcome back to To The Point Cybersecurity. This is your host, Erica Pierce, uh, along with the, my co-host, Eric Trexler. How you doing, Eric? Doing great, Eric. I'm excited about this one. Yeah, no, I'm excited too. And also excited, we took a little bit of a, a holiday break um, from the podcast. So we're excited to be back in the new year um, and with some new topics. So Eric, why don't you tell our listeners about our, our guest today? This is a good one. Yeah, so let me tell you why I'm excited. We have Mark Kelton joining us today. Uh, a 34-year veteran of the CIA counterintelligence. His last uh, assignment was directing the CIA's counterintelligence and counterespionage program. So a lot of times we talk about insider threat. We talk about the evolution of the insider espionage, nation state activity. Mark has lived this the majority of his life. So welcome, Mark. Yeah, I'm pleased to be here. Thank you very much. No problem. And I also understand you're in you're, you're a, uh, an assistant professor at, at Georgetown University, correct? That's correct. I teach a course in the graduate school in counterintelligence. It's actually the history of American counterintelligence. Oh, wow. <laughs> where, where, so where does that start? Revolutionary War or before? Revolutionary War before the Revolutionary War, actually. When you want to talk about the, the genesis of it, of course, was in, in uh, the British tradition before the war, but really begins with American counterintelligence, the Revolutionary War. And we all know about Benedict Arnold, but, but the Brits were pretty, they were pretty strong in this area from what I know. Well, they had, a, they had a much greater capability than the United States did. The United States was a, an emerging nation, obviously. The British had an established capability. So the United States was focused principally on defending itself and on gathering tactical intelligence on the British. Okay. And mm-hmm. so you, you started with the CIA when, I, I can't do the math, forgive me, but- 1981, 1981. 1981, so, so really the middle of the Cold War. Correct, yeah. How, yeah. how did we as Americans evolve from several hundred years ago to the Cold War times? Well, I mean, the, the, the evolution, of course, is, uh, is great. Uh, you know, the United States really had no intelligence community, no formal intelligence community until the Second World War and immediately thereafter. The National Security Act of 1947. Uh, prior to that, we basically stood up intelligence entities as we had wars, and in between, they, we let them wither away. So the profession of intelligence really begins uh, in the 30s, but really is codified in the National Security Act of 1947 that formed CIA. And have we been getting better ever since? I uh, hope so. <laughs> I, like, I like to think so. Yeah. I mean, intelligence is a rough business, right? So you get some things right, some things wrong. I think the CIA and uh, the intelligence community gets more right than it gets wrong. Uh, but it's a lot of hard lessons. It's a difficult craft. So as we, you know, as we look at the 80s and the 90s um, into the 2000s, from an evolution perspective, just looking at those decades, what, you know, how has counterintelligence, how has... Um, espionage, the insider threat really evolved? Well, you know, of course, the Cold War, there's all the classical espionage cases that people read about. If you read, you know, you read your history at all, you know, you read about uh, Rudolf Abel, you read about Penkovsky, you read about uh, the uh, the big cases, the people who were exchanged on the Bridge of Spies, you know. All Rosenbergs, the right? Uh, the Rosenbergs, right. The Rosenbergs, of course, were 
immediately after the war, they were part of the penetration of the Manhattan Project, which is probably the greatest intelligence success and certainly the greatest counterintelligence failing in U.S. history with the Soviets stole the secret for the atomic bomb. But uh, the uh, the issue of evolution of espionage, I mean, that people say there's nothing new in espionage, right? They say it's the second oldest profession with all of the merits of the first. <laughs> and uh, I, li- I like to think, though, that, you know, things do do evolve. Um, so basic principles, though, don't change. So if you look at the history of espionage, you're asking the Cold War through the 90s, 2000s. Of course, the, the big change was the end of the Cold War. People thought that there would be a a uh, an end perhaps to uh nation state spying or at least a diminishment and certainly to russian spying or other adversaries as the united states turned itself in other directions but in fact uh many of much of this didn't go away and intelligence itself adapted to new threats the united states moved from a, a posture of targeting uh principally the soviets although other soviet related adversaries the eastern europeans and the like to looking at myriad problems. And then, of course, uh, in the 2000s, we have the run-up to 9-11, mm-hmm. uh, and, uh, and then 9-11 itself. And then after that, uh, you know, the war on terror, uh, which is an intelligence problem in and of itself. At the same time, of course, we had the 90s saw the, uh, the 90s and early 2000s saw some of the big Cold War spy cases come to an end in the United States through the Ames and Hansen cases, both being uh, detected and rolled up. So I guess that gave the less, should have given a lesson to people that espionage has not ended. And as we see things that are happening today, it hasn't. And Mark, so me, oh, go ahead, Eric. No, Eric. <laughs> okay. Well, I'm just curious. So in terms of obviously it hasn't ended. So then how has the, um, the response um, evolved or changed from, in your opinion? Well, see, in the old days, let me just, let me just talk a little bit about the threat. That's easiest to start with that, right? So if we're talking about nation states, and of course there's all sorts of espionage, there's industrial espionage, there's all, there's all kinds of espionage that go on. And states of various sizes have different capabilities. But if we talk about people that are targeting, say a country like the United States, you have uh, you know, uh, Russia, China, big, big countries with big capabilities. In Cold War period, uh, the amount of material, the amount of damage a spy could could do was basically bounded by physical limits. So what I could carry. Well, spy like Ames, he had to carry out material, photograph material, copy material, what he could carry out in his hands, on his person, and then ultimately deliver to the people that he was working with. So there's a physical bounding of that. Um, the, if you will, the amalgamation of data, the core, the, uh, the drawing together of data of the information age and putting it in databases that are accessible, of course, have also increased the target the target uh, value for those spying against us. So the damage that a single spy can do is much, much greater. You compare Ames with someone like uh, Snowden, an imperfect example, though Snowden defected and is certainly a traitor, um, that it, the information that he took out on in was many times greater than the amount of information that Ames took out. Ames killed people, of course, but Snowden took out information that was greatly damaging to the United States. So, you know, the a spy today, an insider spy, can do great damage in a very, very short period of time. Take some 
something out on a thumb drive, exfiltrate something out over the internet or the like. And we see that both in government and in the private sector. A company can be destroyed in an afternoon. So when you marry that up with globalization, right, the advent of, of high mm -hmm. speed, always on communications, incredibly quick transportation. I mean, we, we mm -hmm. you know, Apple shipping phones via planes when they release. Right. Really, you're, you're, you're talking about a major problem for the for the for the large economies of the world. Well, absolutely. And, and, and there's, there's, there's a couple of fundamental asymmetries, too, that one has to look at. Um, if you're talking about state actors, uh, the United States, there's a fundamental asymmetry between the United States and almost every other country in the world with regard to intelligence activities. And that being the United States has no mandate to collect industrial and trade secrets, the United States intelligence. Every other intelligence service in the world has that mandate. So if you're part of the national security sector, part of the economy of the United States, you have intellectual property, you have financial data, you can potentially be the target of a state actor. And that particularly for companies that, are, uh, that work overseas, it becomes a, a, um, a much greater problem. Beyond that, of course, espionage, you can have a spy, but if the spy doesn't have some, somebody, to, somebody or something to deliver his information to, he really is irrelevant. So the issue then is the means of communication and the rapidity of communication. In the old days, uh, if you had a guy like Ames, uh, Ames would uh, collect his information. He would have to go out and put up a piece of tape on a uh, stop sign in downtown Washington and arrange to leave his material for his Soviet handler in a park in Northern Virginia, which is effectively how he did it. In the modern era, of course, you can have people that can transmit it rapidly over electronic communication, uh, the internet and the like, and in, in a uh, protected manner. So, or they can just get on a plane with information as Snowden did and just leave the country and go out and meet somebody. So the, the modern technology is a double-edged sword. It gives the United States, well, it has given the United States, certainly post 9-11 when the United States you know, the revolution in intelligence affairs, the ability of the United States to collect action and uh, or process and action intelligence at unprecedented rates gives us great advantages in the world. But the again, the adversary is also not passive. The adversary also learns and adapts and uses the same technology and exploits it against us. So we have the most to lose. We have the most information. Right. And we have the biggest problem. What do right. we do? Well, Whether we're going against an insider who's stealing it, you know, PII for monetary gain, or we're going against a nation state who is trying to steal critical IP either from the government or from a business. Mm -hmm. What do you recommend? I mean, it sounds kind of dire. Well, yeah, I, you see, the, the first thing, of course, is to say that, you know, insider threat programs are best work best when they're part of a of a comprehensive defensive strategy that includes also cyber defenses. If you're talking about most state actors, they're going to take what they can take if they're going to target a company, an organization, a government agency. They're going to take what they can take in the cyber arena because they don't have to. It entails less work for them. Right. And if they can do it in a manner that doesn't expose their activity. That being said, if they can't get what they want from strict cyber attack, they will find other ways, which is to recruit insiders, to find insiders who will parlay information. So the, the question then becomes, how do you deal with and detect insider threat? So 
people tend many times to lump insider threat into either cyber or security problems. It's really neither, but both of those capabilities are needed to, uh, to defend against insider threat. Insider threat is really a problem of people and the role of human behavior, understanding human behavior, analyzing it, and addressing the challenges that human behavior might pose. So you've got all sorts of types of insider threat that you're looking for. You're looking for espionage, classified and unclassified, intellectual property theft, industrial sabotage, uh, fraud and abuse. And then finally, a big one that's come out over the last few years is workplace safety, right? Workplace violence. And workplace violence means not only, of course, uh, the the safety of the of employees uh, from a insider, but the safety of that insider itself many times, somebody who's going off the rails and needs psychological help. So sometimes programs help to detect those people before they have a problem. Well, and that, that's interesting. Uh, <laughs> Eric, today we must be on the same wavelength. <laughs> we are insane. <laughs> well, because, you know, I'm just thinking about the notion, um, just to your point, Mark, about um, you know, the, the need to monitor human behavior. And so the notion of that continuous evaluation. So I know we see a lot of, especially risk adverse, um, organizations, um, you know, now monitoring, not just what's happening inside the workplace, but also what's happening outside as well. So like, you know, social media and other public records, things like that. Mm -hmm. but, but do we, I mean, Mark, are, how, how are we doing? Well, who, who depends on who, who what we say we is. Uh, the U.S. government, of course, has, you know, the continuous evaluation program, which has been talked about quite a bit. And that is essentially uh, an effort to uh, draw on uh, more databases to have a look at what employees are doing both inside and outside the workplace that pull that data together and to look at to analyze an employee's behavior and try to detect someone before they act, before they go off the rails Predictive analytics, which is always the holy grail, is the challenge there, right? But you try to you try to pull together data that tells you, well, Jane Jane just had uh, a drunk driving arrest. Uh, Jane has gone declared bankruptcy, and she's coming into work late all the time. And then she has uh, she's trying to access databases she shouldn't access. Those sorts of things pile up, and they say maybe Jane has a problem. Maybe and then the then the question is, how do you deal with that? Um, in my experience, it's always best to have a program that is not punitive in nature. So if you detect a you detect a uh, a problem, as long as it's not outright theft, but a problem, a challenge for Jane, drinking, financial problem, you try to help Jane, right, and try to get in front of that and help her before things get bad. You do that for two reasons: a on the merits because you you've got an employee who's in crisis. Right, it's the right thing to do. Yeah and, yeah, and B, because it sends a good message to the rest of the workforce. What you don't want is a punitive program, right, That uh, where people feel afraid to come forward and say, I think my fellow employee is having a crisis and maybe somebody should do something about it. You really don't want that kind of atmosphere uh, because most espionage cases, the government has studied quite a lot of espionage cases, and I've unfortunately read most of them. Uh, if you look at those cases uh, and, and the history of them, after the fact, when people walk into the offices of the people that they're that those people where those people were working, those spies, almost always you get people who say, "Well, I knew something was wrong, but I really didn't want to say something because it might embarrass him, it might upset 
him. It might it might put him in a bad light with him with uh, management or whatever it might be. There's almost always that case. So that gets to the point of trying to establish an atmosphere with your program that is as trusting as you can make it. And secondly, the focus should always, always be on deterrence, always on deterrence in the first instance, because if you get in the business of just detecting, you're going to be detecting forever. So what do you do with deterrence? Deterrence is education, of course, education and training, but it's also messaging from leadership, messaging from the C-suite, messaging from the agency leadership to say that this is why we have this program. This is why it exists. It exists to protect you, to protect your fellow employees, to protect your jobs, to protect the intellectual property of this company, to protect the classified information of this agency, whatever the case might be, and to explain why a program exists and not try to hide it. This is where you get into the, I was going to go back to it on the continuous evaluation, where you get into the, one of the main challenges is culture. Mm-hmm. Uh, so in many companies, uh, you get people, you get leadership that doesn't want to quote spy on their employees. Right. My response to that is then don't spy on employees. Tell them what you're doing. You're monitoring activities in order to protect them. Right. So, you know, it, 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 I think it just uh, if you mount a program and don't tell the employees anything about it, that's going to be seen by some people as spying. And maybe even after you explain it, some people will see it as spying. But in fact, you have to do right by the majority of the people in the company and by your employees. And in the current threat environment, if you have valuable intellectual property, industrial secrets, classified information, you are a target. Well, and I think we have a responsibility to the shareholders or to the U.S. people. Well, absolutely. You're in a foreign government, whatever your your country is. Well, I like to say I like to say that, you know, the CIA and DOD and all the rest, they execute national security. But national security is built by the U.S. economy. Right. So the, the strength, the strength and the basis of the United States, whether it's in the defense sector, the intelligence sector or writ large finance is based upon the strength of the U.S. economy. So people ought not to forget that when they think about national security issues and not just confined to what CIA is doing or what DOD is doing or uh, or the, the government is doing. It also plays into the industrial and economic strength of the country. And the well-being of the people. That's why government agencies exist. How many organizations follow your guidance and actually promote <laughs> helping a, their employees and, and do the right thing? Well, you know, I, I don't know how you quantify that. I think, you know, that um, I, I think people are increasingly coming around to the to the realization, though, given the events of today, that they really don't have a choice but to look at um to look at the threat holistically and say that, you know, the, the United States, particularly uh, U.S. government, but also U.S. companies are being targeted comprehensively. Um, there wasn't a day that went by in my past job, in my last job at CIA, that I didn't see this. So, um, and I think that CIA today is uh, reaching out itself. And so the uh, intelligence community, I know certainly the DNI is to try to make the case to industry and all kinds of venues that they must pay attention not only to cybersecurity, but also to insider threat, which is a growing challenge for the United States. Well, I know we have a lot of government listeners, so we, we hope that they have uh, or have heard your advice and they will execute it going forward. So sure they are. Sure they are. <laughs> they should take your course. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I there feel you like go. I want to audit it. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great idea. Most, 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 uh, most complimentary. Thank you. <laughs> 
Well, thank you, Mark. Um, that's a, all we have time for um, this week. Out of time week, already, Erica? Yeah, out of time already. You know, we keep it to the all point. Right. Okay. <laughs> what a great start to 2019, though. What a great podcast. All right. Mark, thank this you. has been fascinating. Thank you very much. Thank you. And uh, look forward to speaking to you again in the future. Thanks, thanks, Mark. And thanks to all our listeners um, out there for uh, checking in with us in 2019. We have some great guests coming up. So uh, we're excited to continue down this journey. And please subscribe to the podcast. Uh, give us a uh, comment. Let us know that you're listening and let us know what you want to hear us talk about. So until next week, we'll talk to you later. Thanks for joining us on the To The Point Cybersecurity Podcast, brought to you by Forcepoint. For more information and show notes from today's episode, please visit www.forcepoint.com slash govpodcast. And don't forget to subscribe and leave a review on iTunes or the Google Play Store.